When I was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could with stories I picked up along the way. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where today I'll be looking at the plumb line. If you've ever built anything, you know, measure twice, cut once, and uh, that's where we're going today. So blessings as we explore. If you go to the Seminary of the Southwest Chapel, there next near UT, um, there's a chapel there, Christ Chapel, and in the back is a smaller chapel, and a sculpture is there. And the sculpture is of a city skyline. All the major buildings that you would recognize from all the famous skylines in the world are there in brass. And above it is a plumb line. A plumb line is, of course, that string with a really heavy uh, point or weighted point on the end of the string, and it's held up to see if the wall is straight or not. And, you know, you can sort of eye up pictures on the wall. You can eye up a brick wall that you're building or a stone wall, kind of eye it up and see if it's straight or level. But until you pull out that plumb line, you really don't know if it's truly straight or truly level. And the plumb line is from the book of Amos, from the prophet Amos. Uh, not that he invented it. It was invented much long before him. The, probably the first guy to build a building uh, or woman to build a building used a plumb line to figure out if that wall was straight or not. But in chapter 7 of Amos, he brings this idea in, this, this vision that God has shown him of the plumb line. He says he's standing beside a wall and the Lord is there with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord says, Amos, what do you see? And he says, a plumb line. And he says, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. In other words, that, um, that everything that doesn't measure up to this plumb line is going to be laid waste and fall apart. And he specifically mentions the house of Jeroboam, uh, one of the wayward kings of Israel. And then, in the reading today that Scott read, a Amos is accused of treason. He's accused of being disloyal to the king. He's accused of conspiring. And the person that accuses him is Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. So you can see this sort of triple threat going on. You've got the king, you've got the prophet, and you've got the priest. And these are the three major offices of God's people in the Old Testament. Prophet priest and king, uh, all in conflict. The priest is accusing the prophet of treason against the king. The prophet is saying that God has measured Jeroboam and found him to be crooked. And so therefore the judgment's going to fall. It's not, it's not really sure um, how the Amaziah the priest fits into this, but uh, Amaziah calls Amos a seer. He uses the older term for a prophet and says, go flee to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there. Prophesy there. This is where the king's land is. And, and Amos, of course, famously defends himself in this beautiful way. Uh, 
it's probably a good practice to do when someone accuses you of something you didn't do. He says, I'm no prophet or the son of a prophet. In other words, I've got no stake in this ball game. Uh, I've got no dog in this fight. You know, I'm not trying to preserve the lineage of my prophetic family any more than the king is, you know, in the way, in contrast to how the priest is trying to preserve his stability and his uh, power. Priests were hereditary offices. The priesthood was a hereditary office in ancient Israel. And Amaziah is part of this hereditary family business of being priests. And there are certain benefits that come with that. And the preservation of their legacy is their main drive in life. And so it is with the king, King Jeroboam. The main job of a king is to pass on the kingship to his son. That's the main job of a king. Um, as many cynics have said, the, the one preoccupation of all royals is horse breeding. Um, that's what they've got to do. They've got to reproduce somebody that can take over for them. And that kind of um, obsession with your legacy, your biological legacy, is corrupting, inherently corrupting. And, and Amos knows this, so he distances himself from this kind of horse trading race. And he says, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm a herdsman. I'm a sycamore tree farmer. <laughs> you know, um, sycamore can sometimes be a fig tree, a fig farmer. I make fig newtons for a living. Don't bother me with your hereditary problems and lineages and all sorts of other things that go with that. Um, he says, the Lord took me from my flock and said, go prophesy. And that's what he's been doing. He's been prophesying. He's been prophesying the exile that's coming, the judgment of God, the plumb line has fallen. The measurement has been made. God always gives ample opportunities for repentance. <clears throat> ample opportunities. And most of us don't really do it until the 11th hour, until all is lost, till it's too late, or it feels like it's too late. And even then, it's not too late. <clears throat> even then, the mercy of God is extended to us. That is the opportunity that God offers. But there comes a time, just like if you were to go surfing on the Niagara River near the falls, there's a point at which you get close enough to the falls that there's really nothing you can do. Um, there's a point marked in that river that when you get to a certain point, there really, there's no like even rescue attempt that can be made. No matter how many uh, life jackets, preservers they throw you, there's going to be no way to swim out of that or to be pulled out of that. And that is where the nation is. And Amos is witnessing to that. Even though there's been so many chances, so many opportunities, it is now happening. And everyone accuses everyone of being a conspiracy theorist when in fact there is no conspiracy. The conspiracy is very, uh, is very obvious. It's not even a conspiracy. The judgment is happening that was promised. And it's happening. And they passed the point of no return. But even in that, even in that, they have not passed the ultimate point of no return. The judgment is coming, of course. But just like those sheep that Amos takes care of and those sycamore trees, the fig trees that he tends, um, they have a way of coming back. They always do. The remnant, the root of Jesse will spring up again. That the, ex the return from exile will happen. 
And I cannot help but think as a Christian that the office of Jesus um, as prophet, priest, and king, his messiahship encompasses all three of those offices of ancient Israel, prophet, priest, and king. He prophesies multiple times in his on his earthly life. We've talked about that before, especially in Advent. We focus on those texts of his prophecy. He is the king. Um, he is the one who rules from his throne. He rules with justice. He rules from his cross. He rules from his empty tomb. He rules the kingdom of love. And he says, if my kingdom were, were of this world, then my servants would fight. It is a kingdom of love that seeks to love instead of fight with military force. And then finally, his office as, as priest. The book of Hebrews probably expresses this the best, how Jesus takes his own blood into the, the temp, temple in heaven and offers it on the mercy seat. His own blood being offered there in the presence of God, saying that the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Only the blood of a righteous victim, a righteous lamb, a, a spotless lamb can do that. He is the lamb of God who is both the offering and the one offering it as, as in his office of high priest. And so reconciling all of us to himself in that holy temple in heaven. And that's what the, that's the hope we have. The hope that is dashed. The hope that has fallen apart in the life of Amos and the kingdom that he lives in is restored to us in Jesus Christ as we look forward to his birth into the world, not only giving us warm, fuzzy feelings about Christmas time, which we get and are good, um, but also a very hard edge of deliverance and justice and love and mercy that this king, that this priest and this prophet brings to our lives today. Amen. Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Suffrages B. O Lord, save thy people and bless thine heritage. Govern them and lift them up forever. Day by day we magnify thee, and we worship thy name ever, world without end. Vouchsafe, O Lord, to keep us this day without sin. O Lord, have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us. O Lord, let thy mercy be upon us as our trust is in thee. O Lord, in thee have I trusted. Let me never be confounded. You may have heard the phrase, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Anyone hear that phrase before? Um, that phrase was originally spoken by a bishop in the church named Ambrose of Milan. Ambrose of Milan uh, lived about 1,600 years ago, maybe a little longer than that. Um, just at the point of time where the Christian church was becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire, um, and that, that shift was gradual. It didn't just happen like one day. Um, it happened over time, gradually, in a lot of different forms and ways that were both, we might look back at that time and say both were good and some things that weren't so good. Um, Christians were no longer persecuted. They were no longer at risk of losing their houses and 
farmland and things like that just for being Christian. Um, and and yet there was um, that issue of now that to be somebody in Rome meant you had to be a Christian. There were a lot of people that found opportunities to convert that maybe uh, maybe their whole heart was not in it and brought a lot of their uh, issues with them into the church. And then the church became similar to a lot of other Roman institutions with corruption in them, like government institutions do. There was corruption in the church before it became the official religion of Rome. That's, that's always a constant in um, church life and church history. But Ambrose, um, Ambrose is a bishop who is, like many bishops at the time, brought into office uh, through coercion. He didn't want to be bishop, and they were like, you've got to be a bishop. So they, he, they dragged him into the cathedral and ordained him to be a bishop. Um, he did a lot of things in his life. Um, one, being a bishop was enough. Uh, managing all the different factions that competed for not just people's hearts and minds, but also official Roman recognition. The big issue being Arianism. At this time, there are many Christians, including um, some very powerful Christians, occasionally an emperor, emperor's wife, occasionally other government officials who uh, follow the teachings of Arius, who is a, a dissenting priest who eventually convinced a lot of people that Jesus wasn't God and the Trinity was kind of bunk. You can see this movement being replicated throughout Christian history in many different forms, uh, most recently in Jehovah's Witness um, theology and in some other groups that we would say maybe aren't fully orthodox the way we are. But Arius was one of these early attempts to say Jesus was a created being by God and was not fully God the way, we, the way Trinitarian Christians understand God to be God. And Ambrose dealt with the, the dissension and the theological issues along with that. He also wrote songs, um, an Advent hymn, Vini Redemptor Gentium, uh, one of his famous hits. You can probably hear it on Spotify um, if you want. But it is um, a, a beautiful hymn, and maybe I'll send the link out or we can find the link for that. Uh, he also coined the phrase, uh, when in Rome do as the Romans do as the Roman world and church had different languages that they used, uh, he felt that it's okay to do the liturgy, the church service, in the language of the people. If you're in Rome, use Latin. If you're somewhere where they don't speak Latin, use the language that they have there. When English Christians decided to switch from Latin to English in the English Reformation, they used uh, Ambrose's quote, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Um, to say, when you're in England, and everybody's speaking English, it's okay to do church in English. That's okay to do. And we are doing church in English today um, because of Ambrose's early witness that took about a thousand years for the church to fully accept. Um, but, you know, of all the things that he did, um, there's one moment in his life that stands out to me above all, and that is when a young convert to the Christian faith, he had been a, pretty much a movie producer of the ancient world, a sensationalist, orator, and uh, entertainer, and teacher, uh, who converted to Christianity. He was really smart. He was really, really smart. Um, but he had a lot to learn. 
Um, even though he was really, really smart, um, he had a lot to learn about holiness and about how to study, how to let that the scriptures transform your life. And one day he was walking by the church where Ambrose lived and worked um, as a monk bishop. He lived in the church and he looked up at the window and there was the lamp was on his oil lamp was Ambrose's oil lamp was burning and he was studying and it was late at night. And he was studying the scriptures, reading them and writing about them and thinking about them. And this young man saw that and saw that as an example of how he was going to be a Christian a Christian who studied, a Christian who thought about things and wrote about things. And that young man was Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine of Hippo, who also became a bishop and teacher in the church. And it was Ambrose's light on in his study um, that inspired him to a life of scholarship and learning. He was also a mentor of St. Augustine and was his main teacher for most of his life and ministry. So we thank God for Ambrose of Milan, and his life of study and bearing witness to the faith. O oh God, you gave your servant Ambrose grace eloquently to proclaim your righteousness in the great congregation and fearlessly to bear reproach for the honor of your name. Mercifully grant to all bishops and pastors such excellence in preaching and faithfulness in ministering your word that your people may be partakers with them of the glory that shall be revealed. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.